0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we'll looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox
1: from the Star Wars Universe podcast. And I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast.
0: And today we're talking about Minute 88, which begins with Thor's friends looking devastated and ends with the flight of the hammer. Joining us on the show today, we have Movies by Minutes guest favorite. It's Father David Mowry, chaplain of the Movie by Minutes community.
2: Thank you so much for having me on this week. Uh, although I, it is hard to feel very happy about being on the show because this minute it's very sad. Everyone's very somber. I mean, I I, I think I even saw a tear in, in somebody's eye that was that was a very, a very big surprise to me. So I think maybe a little more reverent tone, a little less excitement might be appropriate today.
0: Because certainly there isn't a uh, rocket ship of hope at the end of this minute by any means. And of course we're talking <laughs> at minute 88. Once again we're getting these reaction shots and we, we see Jane how upset she is. We all we then see Sif and we also see Eric Um, and I just think it's such a great way of kind of we get to see sort of from everybody how much this is affecting them
2: and that plays off of uh, what we talked about on Monday, all the various relationships that Thor has built up over the years. That, with, you know, what, whatever his relationship with Sif is, there is a deep bond there. And Sif has an emotional response to this death of someone that she's fought alongside, that she's lived with, that she's admired in many ways, that she wants to see be better. That's you know, clear from her scoffing at the beginning of the movie like, oh, come on, Thor, just get over yourself. Uh, you see that in Eric. As as well who has formed this kind of brothers in arms kind of relationship there and uh uh, through there, through Thor and Eric's mutual affection and love for Jane, there's that bond there as well, because Eric is having his heart broken twice over. Not only is he upset about Thor's death, he's upset for Jane as well, because he cares very deeply for her. He is a surrogate father for her in a big way. And so there's a, a double pang of grief here for him.
0: And that alone, I think, is such—I love that you pointed that out, because that shows how much the relationship has grown, because it was not that long ago that Eric's desire to protect Jane, his kind of semi-paternal mentor figure, was what was telling him, Thor, you got to get out of town so you don't hurt Jane. Now, like, Mm -hmm. his death is going to break Jane's heart, but he's not, he's clear he's not, he's just as concerned. He's not angry at Thor about this. Mm -hmm. So then we do get the cut back to Loki. And I love it here because what Loki, Loki just kind of looks for a second and then turns away. And then we see the destroyer do almost the exact same thing, which I think is very we're not getting into the D&D specifics of it, but like we're definitely kind of getting the sense that the destroyer is doing what he's doing. What do you think Loki's thinking in this moment?
2: I think Loki is he's done. He's over it. He, he, and I love the match cut between Loki and the Destroyer because it communicates that Loki is putting Thor behind him, literally. He is turning his back. He's ascending the steps of the throne. A new chapter is opening and everything's coming up, Loki. He is, you know, he's, of course, he's going to have to think through the story he's going to have to tell Odin when he wakes up. Oh, it was just so tragic, Father, what happened with Thor when you sent him an exile, blah, blah, blah. He just wasn't cut out for it because he couldn't hack it without the. The hammer really so sad anyway aren't i the best i think i am anyway uh so there's a a finality and a a purpose that's now being um manifest and you know he's gonna stride confidently up those stairs and sit on the throne
1: it also does kind of continue that emphasis that there is some sort of a connection between him and the destroyer in the movement you know yeah
0: Yeah. and i and maybe i'm just the one who's seeing this Uh, fans as always we'd love to hear from you I I get a sense of disappointment almost. You know, that in part because I one of the things that Loki kept talking about was it's not just that he wants to beat Thor, it's that he he sort of feels like Thor is the emperor with no clothes, you know, because he keeps saying hmm. like how could you think Thor would be a good king? He's too rash, he's too crazy. And one of the things I think he's wanted this whole time is not just to have the power that Thor has, but to have everyone say, "Loki, you're right. Thor wouldn't be a good king. You would be a better king." And here, Mm -hmm. it's kind of what we were talking about before, like, where, O death is now thy sting. You know, Loki has won. He's gotten to kill Thor. And what's happening is everyone is rushing around showing, oh, God, we're so concerned for you, Thor. And I just, to me, kind of what I see in this moment is Loki being like, it's done. It's over. And some element of like, "I, I thought this would feel great. I thought this would have that great, like, yes, I won. But instead, it's just like, all right, it's done. The people are still crying over him. I let's just go forward.
1: Although it is a pretty like I mean the way that he turns back to the throne, I mean there's definitely some movement in that. Like if there's a little bit of like a, a I don't know, a little bit of kind of like kingly determinism, you know, like he yeah. he's he mm-hmm. definitely seems to be living the position. And that that's, I think that's highlighted by uh, the two guards that
2: are there in the throne mm-hmm. room. Were it only Loki in this, once again, Dutch angle shot, yeah. uh, I, I would believe a little more self-reflection from Loki, a little bit of a sense of loss. But with the presence of those two guards as symbols of his new state and importance and authority, uh, it, it's hard to feel that much sympathy for Loki because we don't have him isolated. Right. in the shot. Um, the other thing that I thought of in looking at these throne guards is like, I wonder what the pay is like as a throne <laughs> guard on Asgard. I mean, do they get medical benefits? Does Asgard even have dentists? Do they need dentists? Uh, Thor certainly would if they portrayed that. <laughs> oh, oh, boy, after this. yeah. Oh, it, it, it's funny
0: I, I had a similar question of what are they thinking? Yeah. You know, and I, I are, do the guards have to sign an NDA? Do they get to go tell their friends? Oh my God, you know, Loki just killed Thor. Because mm-hmm. we've talked about how no one's probably going to see this. Loki now gets to control the story. But I kind of wonder, like, what about the guards? Are they just sworn to silence? They're never going to tell what they see? Or what's the story there?
1: Yeah, it's like our conversations about the guards. Like, when they were behind the door listening to uh, Odin and Loki have their big fight down in the vault. You know, there's just, like, all these conversations that I feel like it's 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 part of the job. Like, they have to have this royal silence that they, like, you'd think, like, even in the, the, uh, the guards, like, in uh england different different royal palaces and such um but yeah inevitably you think you know there are some potential loose lips out there
0: well the the funny part of that is now how many you know how much do we know about diana or nancy reagan or any of these people because secret service agents and Mm -hmm. buckingham palace guards are all publishing
1: their own books now so exactly exactly well
2: i imagine that loki is not unpopular amongst certain of the, the guards yeah, in Asgard. I mean, Loki has a silver tongue. He is a charismatic fellow when he wants to be. And I'm sure that his transition to the throne has been made so much easier by having sympathetic guards who are loyal to Loki and are happy. Like, oh, thank goodness, Loki's on the throne because that Thor was such an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have a hard time imagining that even the people were politely clapping when Thor was getting sworn in, who were looking over at Loki like, boy, gosh, wish it was you. Because I know Loki, he plays all the angles. I'm sure he was sowing seeds of that and finding sympathetic ears.
0: They may have, some people are like, thank God, this means we don't have to go back to war with the Odinheims. We don't have a whole bunch of ice giants coming to kill us.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. So then we get more of the reaction shots of all the people who are, you know, devastated by this. And I have to say the one that hit me most was Darcy. Because she has been the most irreverent. She's been the most devil may care. She was the one who, while Jane was just like, you know, sneaking glances, was just outright staring at the beautiful man with his shirt off. And seeing her affected, it just really, to me, hits like just how much of an effect Thor has had on the lives of these people who's only known for maybe 72 hours or so.
2: Yeah, it's great. Great acting by Kat Dennings here because her face is crumpling. She's in that pre-crying, uh, scrunching of the face, which only comes from a place of very deep emotion. She's not trying to cry. Her her body is starting to evoke that sense of sorrow. And yeah, it's great to see the scene being played so straight. You know, when the comedic characters like Darcy and Volstagg are sad. You know, well, and when the clowns are sad. Holy smokes, this right. is serious
0: we don't see volstagg reaching for some food to settle his uh, no. emotions <laughs> he's not stress eating at all
1: uh, what i what i love about this particular set of shots here you know jane darcy volstagg and then we i mean when we had been seeing thor like in this dead state we've been seeing jane Kind of over her shoulder. Then, but then, then what I find really interesting, we cut to this shot of Thor, and it's just a little bit closer. We don't see any of Jane. He's dead, and actually, there's kind of a shadow on his face. Presumably, it's Jane, even though we again we don't see her in the shot. But then, if you watch the shot, and I just kind of was scrubbing through it because it's one of those things that I, I think you only really notice subconsciously when you watch the film. Um, the shadow is actually lifted, and he actually gets just a very hint lighter. Like just there's just a little more light to that particular shot it's so subtle but I, I cannot help but think that there's this is an intentional way to kind of hint this like where we're going with this a particular moment here it's i i, find, I it's it's one of the shots that i don't think i ever gave any um uh import to until kind of rewatching in this fashion.
0: Yeah, and I think in the script they're going to go even further, right? They're actually going to have a shot of the Odin's ra- one of Odin's ravens be watching, because uh, in Norse mythology, at least, especially the ravens were often kind of his like eyes out in the world.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which I, I you know, part of me wishes that they had found a way to incorporate the ravens more in the Thor stories. Uh, I think that would be a really interesting thing. I mean, they're there, but they're just not done. Nothing's really interestingly done with them but yeah to have one of his ravens sitting here watching and then cutting to that shot that we get of of cutting to odin in his odin sleep i think that's Mm-hmm. That would have been a really interesting connection. I think. I think as it works, it still implies that there is a connection between Odin and Thor, um, and we don't, didn't necessarily need the Raven to be the one kind of watching and sending the the you know the the Raven Cam signal back to Odin. But uh, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. well, and because we then do like we then cut to the shot of Odin lying in the Odin sleep, surrounded by the Odin jelly or whatever the <laughs> kind of thing that's <laughs> happening here is.
2: Um, Ugh, I don't want Odin jelly. I don't know. No. no Oh, right, take you. that off, My Father David's mess. Christmas I'm, list. I'm, I'm, I'm full <laughs> up. No, no, please, no more for me.
0: Um, and we see the single tear, and I think, I mean, it, it's interesting to me how we, we've talked about this a bunch of times, but until now, the MCU has really tried to say we are a scientifically grounded massive eye roll, but like that's the that's the premise here, and here we're getting into more of the mystical, and I. In some ways, yeah, I kind of wish we'd had the Raven, but kind of also appreciate that there's just no explanation whatsoever of how Odin knows this while he's unconscious, while he's on a different planet entirely. But just Thor has his death and, and a tear rolls down Odin's face.
2: It uh, calls forward to that line that laufe will say as he's standing over Odin. It said that you can see and hear Everything and th- this is proof of that Odin is aware in his Odin sleep of what's going on and it 's proof that Odin did have a purpose for what he was doing. he still loves his large bearded son and wants what's best for him and is grieved by his death it 's not something a father wants to see happen to his children and this Uh, This tear that rolls down Odin's face shows that continuing connection that whatever Thor's banishment was for, it was not a banishment from his relationship with Odin.
1: Right. It's interesting that it is um, this moment uh, that it is kind of I mean... (laughs) I hate to say it but there is very much a trope of that single tear that rolls down that magical tear that resurrects right? I mean it we've seen it so many times in so many films and so many stories where it's just that single tear that comes down and sparks sparks the the change. And I don't know if it's just because it's it's a visual representation of that emotion and that that sense of sadness but I do find that in context of going with the trope and using the single tear it's not Jane Jane doesn't cry, like there's no tears on her face, yeah. no tears on anybody's face on on Midgard as they're watching. It's Odin, it's the father, it's the one who mm-hmm. who kind of really is the one the uh, that got this whole ball rolling, really. Um, but the one who really is the one who's been most pushing for Thor to make this change. And that's, uh, to me, that makes it end up being the most powerful, uh, per the tear that could be uh, coming in this particular moment.
0: Well, first I need to comment and then want to ask, uh, as a child of the 80s and a lover of Johnny Depp's great movie Crybaby, I want to defend the single tear trope because it can be a great (laughs) one, especially when musically expressed. Great movie. Check it out. Um, But also, I'm a little confused because on the one hand, as you say, Odin would be the one who'd be the most affected by Thor's dying. But wouldn't Odin be the one person like on some level, I, I would kind of wonder, doesn't Odin more than anyone know what's coming? Like, is this a tear of sadness? Is this a kind of tear of good? He did it. The hammer's going to come back to him now. Like, what do you think Odin mm-hmm. knows in this moment about what's happening next?
2: Just because you know something is coming doesn't mean you're not grieved by it. Uh, you, you can see something coming and know that there's nothing you can do to stop it and that that's True on so many levels for Odin, Um, not only because of the Odin sleep, but because he just doesn't have very good control over his sons. Not that he can at this stage in their life. They're coming into their own. They're adults making adult decisions that are stupid. But here we are. But he can still be grieved over that and still... Have that be part of the plan. For me, as, as a believing Christian, that works into my understanding of God's providence. God is all knowing, but God still allows us the freedom to choose the good. And there can be a disconnect between what God truly desires in the good and what we choose to do. And there is a—in that disconnect, which we call sin in the Christian tradition, there is something that God desires to change. There's something that God doesn't want in that, and so God intervenes to change that. I think that's it's that's something like that as I work here with Odin he knows that his son has died and he doesn't want that but he is going to be able to work with that for Thor's overall improvement and betterment at least the beginning of it
0: yeah i like i like that vision of it a lot yeah now, of course, we get this kind of a, a fun scene because then we sort of cut back between the hammer starts to move, something's happening, and all the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are kind of going crazy, watching all the dials pop off. Uh, Andy, what do you want to kind of comment on here that we see in, in, in S.H.I.E.L.D. land?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, we've got all these uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. scientists uh, running around the the hammer. Uh, we've got the, we cut to one who's holding a radiation monitor that it jumps from a 100. this is you know the sorts of things that you do on these minute by minute podcasts. It jumps from 100 Miller Rowan Rowan Rowentgens? I'm not exactly sure how to say it. Uh, per hour to 200 milliroentgens per hour. And so, I mean, that's quite a spike in all of a sudden something funky happening as far as the radiation. Oddly, this particular scientist is holding a black device. Uh, when we cut to the close-up of it is actually a yellow one. And uh, you can find it online, uh, buy it on eBay. It's a civil defense Victorine CDV-700 Geiger counter slash survey meter. So if you're looking, there you go. Um, the, the biggest frustration... Not
0: the CDV-600. Not, not the 600. No, this is the mm, 700.
1: No, garbage. Yes, yeah, so you exactly. got the, the, the uh, You know, as so often is the case, the biggest frustration with this is there are so many people running around and just cannot identify who these people are. It's very frustrating. I found a few places that think they identified who they are, but when you look at them with their photos on IMDb, it's like, eh, close, but it isn't actually that person. So, uh, the only other note here is that there's lights flashing periodically. And I don't know if it's just the lights here are flickering or if it's meant to be uh, kind of the starts of some lightning. We'll certainly see that it is getting cloudy out here over, over this site. Um, uh, but we do know that there's electrical stuff happening because we see one of the monitors also flickering. Um, and as, I guess it's a good thing it is because on the screen, it shows all the different camera feeds. And if you look real closely... It, a lot of them show that it's actually night, not day, on that particular monitor. So, uh, But it's one of those things. And then the last note here is uh, what a fantastic decision on the part of uh, Brawn and his team to do this beautiful God's Eye View shot coming straight down mm-hmm. the cube containment down toward Mjolnir here. I mean, what a way to kind of emphasize that Odin's force and his spell in this particular moment. I just I find that shot just to be incredibly powerful in the way that that portrays kind of the the change the shift that's about to happen and
2: you add to that the electrical charge in the sound yeah. design behind this just that steadily rising pitch is like a capacitor is coming up to full charge adds that sense of tension and building and expectation like oh something's gonna happen what's gonna happen with the hammer exactly and it, it, it's all, I think, because of the connection with Odin in the Odin sleep, this is all happening because Odin wants it to. Yeah. Odin is making a decision. That's why we get the flashback to Odin putting the voice-activated enchantment on Mjolnir to make it clear that Odin's making a decision to give Thor the hammer back. Yeah. Which is not what the enchantment says. The enchantment whosoever holds this hammer— Well, Thor ain't holding it. Odin's making a decision to give the hammer back in this moment because Thor doesn't, you know, at this point, Thor Thor doesn't even know that's what he has to do. And so that speaks to... Odin's plan for this overall, it wasn't really so much about Mjolnir. Mjolnir is just a symbol of the worthiness of Thor. And if it's interior to Thor, if it's part of his character, then that's what matters. Like get, now he can, he already has the hammer. It's just Mjolnir is just the symbol of that. Um, what does he say? The the power to destroy and as a tool to build. He's he's worthy of wielding
1: that now, and the hammer is just this sign of it. And the Triquetra reappears. That o, that was part of Odin's spell. Like he cast it. We see it kind of, of a fade. On fade off, and here is that great moment where it comes on full force on the side of the hammer. So, just as a further emphasis of what you're saying,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and I really appreciate the way you kind of answer, you answer the question I was about to ask, which is kind of what is happening with the hammer here, because in later times, like. Thor can pick up the hammer, Thor can even summon it, but it doesn't act mm-hmm. on its own. And mm-hmm. I think there's an interesting parallel here of the relationship between Loki and the Destroyer and the relationship between Odin and Mjolnir, you know, in terms of like who, who has the control, what is the control? And I, I like your version of it that, because in some way it's like, how, does, the, does Mjolnir actually have the, the sentience to say, okay, now there's a worthy person in my... 100-mile range, I'm going to go to him. Um, That's not how it works. But so I like the idea that that's Odin sending it, Um, especially because then Mm -hmm. Odin is the one with the forethought to say, let's maybe send it in a nice ballistic arc instead of just straight through and (laughs) hit a couple of shield agents along the way. Right, right. (laughs) Um, Because certainly we learn later in in Doctor Strange's Emporium that that when someone summons Mjolnir, it doesn't know not to smash into everything it can along the way.
2: Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the wisdom of the Allfather right there
0: exactly exactly so any of the last things you want to say about this minute i feel like so much about the hammer starting its journey we're going to talk about in the next minute um but is there anything else we want to get into right now
1: i just i just want to say you know we cut to that shot of the shield crater base um as we're getting ready to kind of watch what's going on with mjolnir and everything and i just i i feel like especially during the day it just does not play well on film it just looks like you know I don't know, it just looks like a bunch of lights set up and it, it has no sense of power. And so uh, yeah. the the crater base looks cool mm-hmm. when it's uh, darker, when you're looking at it from overhead and you kind of see the uh, the hamster cage and everything. But in a shot like this, it's just mm-hmm. like wah, wah, it just it it doesn't carry much weight.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that works to the, the story's benefit. I don't think that's intentional. I think that's just it's a nice um side effect because now shield doesn't have the power they are not the big obstacle to be yeah. overcome true, true they they have been reduced because of thor's worthiness because odin has um made this decision to interpret his own voice activated enchantment to just give the hammer back to thor because okay mission accomplished he learned the lesson uh, let, let's let's move this along now
0: like i think it is a trope we often see in in stories like this of the mythological the mystical thing happening happens and so people come in and try to scientifically study it they try to figure out is it mm. 1 million or 200 molecule whatever it was you know and like
2: <laughs> what does the scouter say about its power yeah level? exactly
0: the 700 remember like and and to <laughs> yeah. me there's a real i I love this element because what it shows is like how irrelevant all this is you know that like mm-hmm. shield is very powerful shield could help take down the the the, the enemies at the end of iron man 2 you know the the rogue suits and the like shield can take all of darcy's research but in the face of this as guardian mystical power of the hammer they're just ants scurrying around without anything to do you know and I, I just thought that comes through so well
1: true true
0: mm-hmm. uh well father david then the pulpit is open Christ in the Cave? Well, <laughs> brothers
2: and sisters, <laughs> let us open our books to the, the holy scriptures. And no, no, no. Uh, so for today's segment of Christ and the Cave, we've touched on this theme already over these last couple of days, but I wanted to tease out the, the idea of soteriology, which is the theology of salvation. How does uh, Thor as a hero kind of evoke the understanding of salvation, of, of setting us free from what has gone wrong? And so in the story of Thor, what's going gone wrong are the family relationships. It's the relationship between two brothers and the relationship between a father and his two sons, which already evokes so many of Jesus's parables and, of course, is evoking a lot for us because we all live in families and we know what it's like to navigate family structures and family systems when they've gone wrong in this way. And so the healing of what has gone wrong, the healing of this family relationship comes about by Thor being worthy. And Thor. Thor's worthiness does not happen in typical Asgardian terms, or at least in the terms that Thor has uh, been fed with as the king's son, as a mighty warrior. The the worthiness doesn't come from defeating the destroyer in the typical way, doesn't come from a great feat of strength, doesn't come from wrestling the giant serpent at Ragnarok. It comes through a humility, through an acceptance of, look, I play a part in this family system. I have done things to lead you to make this decision, and I'm sorry for what I did. I'm acknowledging your agency, like you said, Matthew, but I I own the fact that I'm part of this system and I'm going to take responsibility and change my behavior in order to bring us to a better place. And Odin, being the father in the family, sees what Thor needs to do, but he knows he can't force Thor to do it. He can only just set Thor up to learn the lesson. And and it's easy to imagine Thor not learning anything in his exile on Midgard. It's only because Loki decides to try and kill him that we actually have the salvation, which creates this very interesting providential theme that it's only through the exercise of evil that good is able to try. But that's a separate thing. Um, So it's the humility that, that brings about the worthiness of Thor and brings about the healing and reconciliation in the family system. And as in the parable of um, the father and his two sons, one who goes off to feed the pigs and the other who stays at home, the question now is, so the prodigal son is about to return. How does the other brother— respond to that prodigal son's return? How is the last member of this family system going to receive this invitation of grace, this invitation of salvation? And that's the question that's going to animate the last act of this
1: movie. It's interesting that um, with all, in context of kind of all of that, that I can't help but think there's a really interesting lesson that marvel could learn in kind of crafting stories as we kind of continue moving forward of how um, how perhaps much more powerful like stories with kind of conflicting siblings like this can be and how, I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, look at it. Loki is the character that has returned as a villain and now kind of a protagonist sort of thing. Um, so often across the course of the Marvel cinematic Mm -hmm. universe. And I mean, every other villain usually gets killed off pretty much in the, in the film. And that's kind of the way of it. And I, I find that to be a really interesting element that we have here. And, um, to that point, I just think that allows for such interesting depth to explore,
0: and it is one I think that that Marvel does sometimes go to, uh, not enough though. You know, like Black Panther is very much a family story. Um, I'll there's another Marvel property that may not have been watched by everybody here that is also a very good a uh, uh, family drama. I, I just spoiled it without meaning to spoil it, but um, you know that I feel very seen right yeah, now because uh, <laughs> I, I, I think, <laughs> Father David, what you said was very correct of. I've never been an Asgardian god of thunder, but I've fought with my father. You know, most of us have siblings or parents or children that we, and uh, when um, some of the Shakespearean experts who came on before, where was, that that's what makes Shakespeare so relevant. You know, like we've had, you know, if you're a parent of an ungrateful child, King Lear can be incredibly relevant to you. Or if you've been an ungrateful child, you know, like either either place on that side or however it is. So, yeah, and, and that's what I, I, I really appreciate the way you're kind of tying that together because— you know these are themes that we see so often, and it's just so to me, it's so fascinating seeing how we take one set of stories of, of the Christological stories and and look at them with that lens through Thor. And just there's so much more that comes to light, really interesting. All right, well, I think that's probably a good time to to wrap things up, Father David. Um, uh, you spoke to my heart, and I know one of your other podcasts about um Star Wars and The Last Jedi, which is I, I adore because I, I think it's a great movie and also kind of gets into more of the theology of the force and the spirituality of the force than most other things mm-hmm. um and is most controversial uh, but you've uh, uh-huh. kind of got a good moment tell us more about kind what are some of the other um geek geeky fandoms that you've kind of touched on a lot that you go back to in 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 your podcasting?
2: Uh, in my podcasting, I'm, I, I'm always happy to be on Star Wars Minute. Hello, Pete and Alex. I hope you're listening. Uh, always happy to go back on their show. I love Indiana Jones Minute. I think those guys have a lot of fun. And one of my big uh, war horses for uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was that that movie moved away from the religious themes that were animating the first three movies, I think to Crystal Skull's detriment. But you can listen to my appearance on Indiana <laughs> Jones Minute and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull to, to hear me talk about that. Uh, and the other big one for me is, is Marvel. The, the superhero stories are, they, they spark that same joy of mythology that I had as a, as a kid reading the stories of Greek heroes and Greek gods and Thor. These are our modern myths. Yeah. And I so appreciate the high emotion and the heightened scenarios that allow for conversation around these deeper things, around family relationships, around salvation, around the, the burden of life given back to you, like uh, Andy and Pete. I talked about in the Iron Man minutes where Tony is struggling with with the fact that I'm alive now. Now, what do I do? Because I feel like there's there's something I'm called to do now. Uh, And I think these early Marvel movies are, are wrestling with these kinds of things. I think Marvel Cinematic Universe disappears up its own butt a little bit as, <laughs> as it goes on, where it just kind of gets too invested in the Marvel story and not telling a story about humanity. But yeah, that's, that's for like phase two, phase three, <laughs> Father, David, uh, Christ in the case. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Well, yeah. I love that. Um, so much like I, 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 I've talked on other podcasts, not on this one, but that I, I was not raised Christian. And in many ways, my first introduction to Jesus stories, I was like, Oh, this guy sounds a lot like Yoda. I can get behind this. <laughs> I was a Jedi before I was a Christian. So yeah, I love just hearing all the way of these connections. And we'll definitely have you on, on a lot of the other podcasts. I also have a Star Wars podcast that we'll get you on. Um, mm. uh, but thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, Andy, thank you as always to our fans. Thank you so much. You make this possible and have a great day.
1: Until next time, true believers.
0: Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Rhyme by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.